morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Happy Memorial Day to you. My name is Josiah. I see lots of new faces. This is amazing when you come into a weekend, you think nobody's going to be here. And then we have all these people. Um, it does my heart good. So uh, my name is Josiah. I'm the worship pastor here. I'm uh, filling in. Uh, to preach today. Uh, every now and again, I get an opportunity to do this, and so I'm not normally the one up here um, uh, giving you guys the word of God today, um, but it's my privilege and honor to do so. Let's dive right in. So, again, John chapter 15. Let me pray for us, and then, uh, and then we'll dive in. God, I pray that you make your word living to our hearts and minds. It is alive. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts through. It cuts through bone and spirit, God, and I pray that that is true today, that it's not just simply, merely palatable to ears and hearts today, but God, not in a minimizing way like that, but God, in a real God-stirring way. Make waves today by your spirit in our hearts and our minds. Come and conform us by your word Make us more like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are finishing up our series, uh, the I Am series. This is looking at the seven messianic statements in the Gospel of John, or the I Am statements that Jesus has made. This is the final one. It's buried right in what is called um, the... um, uh, uh, what is it called the the final or the um, the sending off discourse? Um, this is where Jesus is talking to his disciples, a final discourse with his disciples, farewell discourse. Good think of the word. Um, chapters thirteen through sixteen, and this is buried right in it. Is probably the heart of this discourse to his disciples. What he wants to make clear to them. This is really at the heart of it. He says, "I am the true vine." And this is a metaphor that he's bringing in now, as Jesus has done many times, um, and, it's an, and it's a phenomenal metaphor. It, not only because uh, Jesus is so sharp in his mind and nimble-minded that he's able to take something like an agricultural metaphor and, and shape it into something new and fresh for his disciples to understand in this moment, taking the same analogies like farming and planting and seeding and use it to bring something fresh to the table, um, it's also, it's not like uh, the other parables where there's a plot and a narrative. He says, I am the true vine. So he's saying something very distinct here, and this is in reference to a lot of Old Testament texts, um, primarily uh, Isaiah 5. Um, we're not going to go through them today, but if you want to write them down, Isaiah 5, Ezekiel 15, you can go back and read those. Um, this is referencing Israel as the vine. And the context is As long as Israel, the vine, abides in the Father, the vine dresser, and obeys his commands, they will bear much fruit. The problem is, as we know, that Israel um, did not all the time, right? Uh, They were disobedient. They didn't abide in the Father. They actually seek satisfaction elsewhere and uh, therefore didn't produce fruit, or if they did, as Isaiah said, they produced what's called, it says, wild grapes. It was impure fruit. It was hybrid-like fruit. But Jesus steps on the scene and says, I am the true vine. Because he says this because he comes in and says, um, he's the better Israel, right? I'm the better Israel. I perfectly obey the law. Jesus perfectly obeys the Father's commands and therefore produces lasting fruit. Is that me? 
Anybody know? Anybody hear that? <laughs> is, it, is it just in my ear? Um, he produces lasting fruit, long-lasting, pure fruit, um, organic fruit, we could say. And um, it turns out that the whole metaphor was just a shadow for a better one. The whole metaphor in the Old Testament was just a shadow for a better one. And Psalm 80 actually prophesies this. It says this. It says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. Here in John 15, God is still the vine dresser. He's still the caretaker. Um, and he's removing the branches that aren't bearing any fruit. And he's pruning the ones that are bearing fruit so that they might flourish. What does this mean? First thing to consider that I'd like us to consider this morning is that God ensures fruitfulness. God is the one who ensures fruitfulness. Stop and think about um, the context here and how difficult it would be for the Jewish people to accept and believe what Jesus is saying. He comes on, he says that basically your heritage, your history, all your ceremony, it doesn't mean much. I'm the vine, you're not. And unless you're connected to me, you actually are not God's people. Can you imagine how difficult it would be for the people at that time, the Jews, to be able to understand and grasp this and not to reject Jesus? How telling it would be for the unbelieving Jew when hearing these words. Choose Jesus, choose God. Reject Jesus, reject God, and therefore be rejected by God. Would you have accepted him in that moment? Would, would you say today, like, yeah, man, I would have cho- chose Jesus, given in, in that context, put in those shoes. I know we like to th- like separate us, ourselves and um, disassociate ourselves from the Pharisees, but I think the real truth is that if we weren't the ones nailing him to the cross, we'd be jeering it on. So setting the stage here, having right context for what we're looking at. Let's continue to read. Uh, Starting verse 3. Let's jump ahead a little bit. Verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burn. If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. The word abiding here is used 11 times through 1 through 17, and it means this. If we look it up in the dictionary, um, we can get this, uh, two different definitions. One is continue, survive, last, persist, stay, to live, to dwell. And then a second definition that the, def- um, the dictionary gives us is to obey, observe, follow, to keep to, hold to, conform to. I think both of these Jesus has in mind when he's giving this. And he's saying, abide in me. I think both of these are true. Jesus' um, call to us is both obedience and staying and remaining. He says, if my words abide in you, 
If you abide in me and my words in you, right? What words? What is Jesus talking about? What words is he referring to? These are the words that he spoke to his disciples and will speak to his disciples. Just look back a few verses in chapter 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. This word seems to be the initiator of our abiding and the keeper of it. What do I mean by the initiator? Well, I mean the initiator because in verse 3 says, already you are clean. He proclaims them clean. This word clean is the state of a plant after it has been pruned, after it has been purified. It is cleaned, meaning likely that we're already purified because of what Jesus has done for us. We're already at a state of purification because of what Jesus has done for us. Our sins have been atoned. We've been justified before God. We are clean before him. Consider... uh, Just again, a couple chapters back, Jesus in chapter 13, washing the disciples' feet, and he gets to Peter, right? And Peter's like, absolutely no way. You're not washing my feet. And Jesus is like, if if you don't don't allow me to wash your feet, you have no share with me. Okay, Jesus, well, just not my feet then, my head and my hands. No, Peter, you don't understand. If you've already bathed, you don't need to be washed again, but only your feet, symbolizing a completed work and also an ongoing work. He tells them, you are clean. In the, same, in the same story, you are clean, but not every one of you. Some, like Judas, would fall to the ground as dead branches. But those who believed, not in just the words of Jesus, but in the word, the incarnate word, the logos, would have life. Would have life because God, in chapter 14, 23, we just read, would come into them, the giver of all life would come into them and produce life in them. And they would believe. And wet, sappy, green life would burst through them because Jesus, the Father, the Spirit of God, were biting in them. This actual word is tabernacled, taking in reference the tabernacle where God dwelt among his people. And then Jesus dying and rising again, Um, He says, I will be with you to the end of the age. I'll send my spirit with you. Never will I leave you, nor forsake you. It is God within us now. God coming, abiding in us now. Abiding begins from a place of this being. Understanding this. When we abide in Christ, we understand that it is God abiding in us first. It's this place of being, this reality of purity before God that God himself has given us that we can rightly obey him and abide in him. Harold Best, he describes this as mutual indwelling. I love that word, mutual indwelling. And he says it starts with God. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, mutually indwelling with each other. Listen how he describes this so beautifully. God is the uniquely continuous outpour. He cannot but give of himself, reveal himself, pour himself out, even before he chooses to create. And before he chooses to reveal himself beyond himself, he eternally pours himself out to his triune self in unending fellowship, ceaseless conversation, and immeasurable love unto an infinity of the same. 
Within limitless intercourse, transcendent speech and splendid work, the Father to the Son, the Son to the Spirit, and the Spirit to the Father, the Godhead goes about its glorious work of being the eternal I am, that I act, that I am, with nothing contingent, proceeding or following. This is the originating outpouring for which these mere words fail and into which our faith not yet becomes sight, becomes our peers with intense longing. What beauty we see in God pouring himself out and dwelling, abiding in himself. And he invites us in. Consider the anatomy of a tree real quick and try to help illustrate this. You have the roots that dig down deep into the earth and then the trunk which holds the weight of the entirety and the branches that stretch up to the sky. All of these are different parts of the tree, but all are tree, right? You would not say it if it's, you're looking at a tree, well, the, the branches are tree, but the trunk is not tree, or vice versa. However, the trunk is still a tree apart from the branches, but if a branch falls off, the branch is not tree. It falls to the ground, it withers, it dies. The, the trunk, the, the stalk, the vine, is not dependent upon the branches to be a tree, but the branches are dependent upon the stalk and the vine and the trunk to be a tree. This is exactly what Jesus means when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. What is a branch good for if, it, if it's severed from its source of life? I don't know about you, but when I have branches all over my yard, I gather them up, I put them in a pile, and I burn them. They're discarded. And it's doubtful that Jesus is actually meaning literal fire and burning here. He hasn't broken his metaphor yet. But what he is obviously saying is destruction. The obvious meaning that we can get from this is that there is destruction if you're severed from the source of life, when you're severed from the vine. What is the answer to that? It's obvious. It's abiding. Abide. Remain. Remain in Jesus. Continue reading me 7 and 8 here. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Second thing to consider this morning, abiding is a process. First, God is the insurer of our abiding. But second thing is that this is a process. This is a process. Again, remember, there is the completed work and there's the ongoing work. There's the ongoing work. Never once does Jesus here seem to assume that all will abide in him, right? He actually assumes the opposite, that there will be many that that will not. But he does give the answer to abiding in him. And it's twofold, I believe. One, we already looked at. We're made to abide because of God indwelling, God abiding in us. We've been recreated, given new hearts. We have the ability to abide, to, to actually obey the commands of God by his spirit. We can abide. That's first. But second is prayer. The second thing Jesus gives us is prayer. Verse 7, ask whatever you wish. Verse 16, if we looked ahead here, So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The, in this context, the assumption is that you're, you're actually going to your God in prayer. 
You're actually going to him. If we were to talk about abiding apart from prayer, I think we would actually be talking about something um, really other than abiding. There is no abiding apart from prayer. It doesn't happen apart from a prayerful dependence upon him. You know, I really wanted to remove this portion of my section or the section of uh, my sermon um, last night because, you know, I'm cut on time and I'm like, what do I got to remove? And I like, you know, I don't know if it's actually that strong of a theme in here, but I, God just wouldn't allow me. And I think the reason is because I have a hard time praying. I have a really hard time praying. And I think that's twofold. Here's the reason. One, prayer is my greatest calling. Oswald Chambers says that prayer does not fit us for the greater work. It is the greater work. Remember that. Prayer is your greatest calling as a Christian. And second of that, apart from prayer, we do not abide. So what greater way for the enemy to come and distract us and distract me and to keep me from praying, to keep me distracted on everything else that's stupid and doesn't even matter and the things I spend my time on, and I justify my lack of time to pray because I got to do all this other stuff. What a, what a smart, what a, what a creative way the enemy has of, of taking us away from abiding in our vine, Jesus, to distract us. And therefore, we do not abide. No prayer no abiding. I believe that's clear. The question is, are, are you not abiding today? Well, how's your prayer life? You can ask that question. How's my prayer life? Am I not remaining? Do I not feel like I'm, I'm remaining in the vine, that I'm actually following? What does that mean, practically? Obeying God. Am I, am I having a hard time actually obeying what Jesus is calling me to? How's your prayer life? If you don't have one, there, there are methods. We, a couple months ago, gave you a method to be able to start praying. And, and it's a phenomenal one. That's the Acts method. If you're not familiar with it, A, adoration. We start off by just giving God our adoration. God, thank you for all that you are, all that you have done in Jesus for me. Thank you for creating all that I have, giving me all that I need day after day. You are above all. You are in all. You are through all. God, you are magnificent. We adore him. And it leads us to, as we look to God as this holy, almighty God, we see, I'm not. It leads us to confession. See, we confess our sins before him. God, I'm not. I've tried to act like you, but I'm not you. Forgive me. Have mercy on me. Leads us to thanksgiving. Thank you that, as your word says, if I confess my sins, you are faithful. You are just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Thank you, God. And then supplication. This is simply just, what do you need? What can you offer before God? What do you have that's weighing on your heart that you need to bring to him? Believe that he hears you and he cares. And his promise is this. It will be done for you. In chapter 15. Ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. There's two things to remember here. Because this is important. We can read this and, and we can go in two different directions. Well, that's, Jesus doesn't mean that, you know. Or we go in the other direction and we, and we just say, well, whatever I ask Jesus, he better give me, right? Two things to remember, and, and that is, um, this is not an obscure verse. 
right? It's not a misnomer within the Bible. It's very consistent with Jesus' teaching. We look back in chapter 14. We look ahead in 15. Um, and again, Jesus reiterates this in 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. James 5, verse 7. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Um, it's very consistent throughout Scripture. The other part to remember, though, is that prayer doesn't change God, Right? It's been said that prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes you. As you come to God in prayer, as you come to God in prayerful dependence, he's actually conforming you at the same time to his mind, to his heart, to his will. And so when Jesus says that if you ask anything in my name, the understanding is that in prayer, in this process, your will will look a lot different. It would start looking like the Father's. And in that, from that place, we can ask what we want because what we want is what the Father wants. And if it's what the Father wants, then of course Jesus is going to do it. So may we have faith when we read passages like this. If you don't, pray for that faith that you might pray better because in this conforming, in this conforming, your, your prayers become effective as your wills become more conformed to his. But the conforming is, um, this part is painful. It's the conforming pro- part that's, that's painful, right? As I said, the, it's a process. The abiding is a process. In, um, in verse 8, read that with me. By this my Father is glorified, what? That you may bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. It's this painful process of proving to be his disciples. The process is God pruning, God coming in and purifying, removing what is excessive in our lives, what is often harmful to us, taking away so that we might see more clearly and in a more beautiful picture Jesus and adore him and put our dependence in him. Does this passage, as it reminds you of another passage in the Bible, so quickly, um, when I read this, I, I'm, I'm drawn back to Hebrews 12. I think I have it on the screen. And I want to read. Um, is it not working, guys? Not this whole time? It's amazing. <laughs> Love it. Um, okay, good. If you have your Bibles, man, thank you. Um, chapter 12 of Hebrews. And I'm going to read verse 7 through um, 11. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God not only initiates our abiding, he keeps us in our abiding. 
He ensures our abiding by this painful process of pruning. Christian, God, God cares for you so much. He cares for you so, his love is for you so that he does the painful work of stripping you of everything, every idol, everything that would hinder you from being fruitful. The best thing I can think of this is my son. My son is three years old, and I love him so much that I have to discipline him. I will discipline him. I will be hard on him and firm about things because I love him so. I know what it will yield in his life. I have faith in that. I put confidence in that. And God, in the same way, loves you so much that he will not allow you to go unfruitful. He will ensure your fruitfulness by taking what is harmful away from you. The clearest part, the transparency of this passage is that every follower of Christ is fruitful without exception. It's transparent. It's clear. May we not miss that. Every follower of Jesus, every Christian will bear fruit. Read with me verse 9. As a father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, this it seems real similar language, right, Jesus is using. We might think, well, Jesus is reiterating what he's already saying, maybe even being a little redundant. But this agricultural metaphor has its limitations that he gave with the vine and the branches. It has its limitations, and it cannot depict the unfathomable love that places the disciples in this intimacy with God. And so Jesus says this, what better way, you know, for him to describe his love to his disciples than, than to show and say, as the Father loves me. That's how I love you. Right? This is a love that's not only perfect in its nature, but it's complete in its purpose. The love that God has for his Son and Jesus for us is not only perfect in its nature, but it's complete and its purpose. The cross comes into full view here as Jesus is speaking. Only hours from now, he will go to the cross and demonstrate his love for them. And he says this, that as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And what I have done for you is complete. He would cry out, it is finished. No better way to describe this than to look to God and his perfect intimacy with the Son and the, and the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's a love that began before the beginning of time. And then also, if we're recipients of this love, in a similar way that Jesus is a recipient of the Father's love, then we must remain in Jesus' love by the same means that Jesus remains in the Father's love. I'll say that again. If we're recipients of this love from Jesus similar way that Jesus is a recipient from the Father's love, then we must remain in Jesus' love by the same means that Jesus remains in the Father's love. What is that? Obedience. 
obedience, as I have obeyed the Father's commands. It's Jesus' perfect obedience that's a central theme and reality in the gospel. That Jesus comes as the perfect and spotless lamb, fulfills the law to a T, and therefore is the perfect substitute. He therefore goes as the lamb to be slaughtered. He takes away our sins. And here, it's Jesus' obedience that serves as a paradigm for our obedience to God. It does not mean that it's either perfect obedience or apostasy, like there's some ultimate alternative, right? But Jesus is set up as the standard. Jesus is set up as the standard of obedience, and then we ask, well, how can I measure up? How can I meet this standard that Jesus is saying that I've, I've obeyed the Father's commands? How can we ever do so? I think this is important. We've already talked about, and I firmly believe this, that God, Jesus would not say, uh, ask us to do something that we cannot do. Okay? So if he calls us to follow in his commands, we can do it. Why? Because the Spirit of God is within us. But also, I think it's important to realize this. In, in chapter 14, in verse 15 and 21, we'll look at both those. So John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Yes, our obedience keeps us in his love, But no less important, it is our love for him that creates obedience. D.A. Carson says, our love for Jesus is the wellspring of our obedience to him. As our obedience is the demonstration of the reality of that love. Does that make sense? Our obedience becomes the reality of the love that we have for God. And it's from this place of loving Jesus that we actually obey him. Again, the closest thing I have to describe this is my son. Like any three-year-old, he's disobedient at times. He's wild at others. But I'm telling you, he is so, desi- he's so desirous to, um, to make me happy as his father. I, he, he already grasps this concept of loving me and me loving him. I don't know how, it's a supernatural way. It brings me tears when I think about it, but sometimes he'll be like, Daddy, I'm a good boy. <laughs> I'm like, buddy, you're not being a good boy. And, you know, and he's so smart, too. He'll twist it on you. Like, so he'll be like, you know, coming in on, on something, he's like, Daddy, I'm a good boy. I'm like, well, well, well and I gotta kind of weave through, like, you know, like what I'm telling he is and, and what he's doing. And, um, but he has this buried in, in him. That I want to be... A good boy. I want to make you happy. I want, to, I want to love you in this way. That's such a beautiful picture that we have, I think, of when we understand that God is not, that we have this relationship, we've been brought into this intimacy with God, that we actually can love God. He's given us the ability to love Him in return. And when we learn to love him by abiding in him, we want to follow in his commandments. We want to make him happy. Verse 11. And finally, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
Bottom line is this. Jesus is not an oppressor. He's the deliverer. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and brought us in his marvelous light. Jesus is the deliverer. He's not coming to oppress you by giving you commandments and say, do this so that you make me happy. No, commandments do not bind you. Jesus' commandments do not bind you. They free you. And Christian, the sooner you understand this, that Jesus' commandments to you are for your good, then you will experience his joy. And, And get this, he's not greedy. He does not skimp on his joy. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't give it in discreet packages for us. No, but he will give joy insofar as we share in his obedience. He will allow us and share his joy insofar that we share in his obedience. And what is his obedience? It's his hard self-denial and sacrifice. This downright hard sometimes. But these this hard, even though it's hard because it's, it's tearing against our flesh, we understand there's war inside of us. What is good for us is hard sometimes. But we also know this, that First John tells us, it is not burdensome. First John 5, 1 through 3. I'm going to read this quickly. If I, I really wish I could do this. Um, uh, I wish I could go in and actually do a, a parallel between chapter 15 here and, and the Gospel of John and then take a side-by-side of a 1 John um, because the similarities and what John is trying to communicate in one book is he, he really completes in another. And um, chapter 5 of 1 John, verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Do you have faith in Jesus today? Is it a big faith? Is it big enough to overcome the sin in your life? to allow you to walk in obedience to Jesus? Has your faith caused you to love Jesus more, despise and reject him because of the commands that he has for you? Psalm 51, it's really interesting. We, we may know this psalm pretty clearly, at least this portion. It says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. It's interesting that the psalmist would pen immediately afterwards these words, and uphold me, with a willing spirit. Or we could say, put a willing spirit in me to obey. Do you long for joy today? The starting place is obedience to God. To have a willing spirit to obey Him and allow the joy of obeying Him and walking and following after Him to follow. This analogy was used. Um, months ago, and I think, Micah, you actually said it, and I think it's beautiful that as a husband, you know, when there's those times of intimacy where there's, um, you know, it's lacking, and, and, and we wonder, you know, why, the real thing we ought to do is just do what we know we ought to do. 
When our heart isn't where it should be, we do what we ought to do and allow our heart to catch up. We start buying flowers. We start taking them out on dates. We start saying things that really we're not feeling, but we allow the feelings to catch up. And that's reality sometimes. And it's true for our Christian walk. Do you long for joy? Jesus will give you joy. Jesus will give you joy. He will share his joy with you insofar that you share in his obedience. It's being gripped by the love of Jesus unto us that persuades us to remain in that love and causes us to obediently love and love obediently. Would you stand to your feet? We're going to sing now in response to God. I invite you guys to sing this song along with the band in a way that you say these words that, you're, God, you're the rock of ages, the cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Make it your prayer today. Let's respond to God as we sing to him.